So you actually have to ask yourself, how do these people who live thousands and thousands of kilometers away from the first police station or from the first court, how do they resolve their disputes? The conditions of the slaves are tough. Because an slave, he travels with his master. He is not remunerated. He is not paid. He is not paid. Is this being a girl or a woman? If this is being a girl or a woman, then it's not for me. I'm not this girl they are talking about. I'm not this woman they are talking about. Welcome to Rule of Law Talk, a podcast series of the World Justice Project. Here we share the latest learning about the rule of law, what it is, how it works, how we can strengthen it. I'm Joe Haley, ACLS Mellon Public Fellow and Program Manager for the Rule of Law Solutions Initiative. In this podcast mini-series, I'll be sharing research about justice innovations around the world. We'll dive deep with justice champions in some of the most difficult environments for development and the rule of law. In this episode, I speak with Tomi Lola Adejana, an enterprising young Nigerian with a background in finance and social impact investing, Tomi Lola founded Bankly, a tech startup which leverages traditional savings networks to bring digital currency, personal identity, and financial services to unbanked Nigerians. We spoke at the Hill Innovating Justice Forum in The Hague, Netherlands, where Bankly had just been announced as this year's winner of the Innovating Justice Challenge an incubator program run by the Hague Institute for Innovating Law. A homegrown innovation, Bankly pairs Nigerian leadership in fintech and telecommunications with analog methods that Nigerian companies have long used to distribute physical commodities, such as Coca-Cola and mobile credit, to their country's poorest and most remote communities. While digital financial services may seem like a matter of convenience, they can actually serve a critical justice need. In a 2018 survey of legal needs and access to justice in Nigeria, the World Justice Project found that 36% of Nigerians had experienced legal trouble in the prior two years due to a consumer problem, such as problems related to poor or incomplete professional services, major disruptions in utilities or incorrect billing, or obtaining a refund for faulty or damaged goods. And an additional 7% of Nigerians experienced legal trouble due to a problem with money or debt. The widespread adoption of digital currency could help Nigerians avoid these difficulties, in addition to the obvious benefits it would provide for the security and transparency of financial transactions. While the formal identity provided by bank records can help the poorest citizens gain access to additional opportunities the law provides. As you will hear, Bankley's approach to last-mile service delivery reflects its founders' belief in market research, iterative design, and client-centered strategies for innovation. In that sense, Tomi Lola represents a new generation of innovators who are searching for everyday solutions to close the justice gap across the Sahel. My name is Tomilola, again, I'm from Nigeria. 
I have lived in Lagos, Nigeria all my life, but according to my dad, I'm from still the southwest Ondo state. Never been to my village or countryside, as they say, with you guys. Like you already know, I run a, I'll call it a tech startup, legal tech, fintech, as long as we're all trying to fight for the same justice for the people. The semantics doesn't matter. Bankly, that helps to protect the local traders, the unbanked, from theft, fraud, and just make them a person, give them an identity and a profile. And why did I get into this? Funny, I I started my career in investment management with a local boutique firm in Nigeria and then went on to do my MBA in an Indian business school. But I was, um, it was in Sydney, Singapore, and Dubai. So my first um, foray into how finance or fintech can be used as a, as a weapon for justice, or a weapon for good, rather, was in... Sydney, while I was working with a peer-to-peer lending company to find out what kind of business model they could use to support lending. And then I went to Singapore and um, I was attached for a project with this private equity firm who was looking for opportunities to invest in Nigeria, South Africa and Kenya. But I didn't know that I was going to end up. I was ready to go back to Lagos and continue my investment banking job and everything. But I had this older friend and he reached out to me and said, oh, you seem to have this experience with all of you, what you've done. I'm talking to one of the biggest bank, Axis Bank and the biggest telco, HR Networks, to see how we can use the data of people's mobile phone to build a credit score for them so that they can access credit. Now, these people ultimately don't have any form of data, but they have a mobile phone. How can we use the data they already have to profile them and then be able to give them support for their business? And I loved it. I said, this is exciting. And we're also trying to look at farmers, the agri space, because we felt like the cycle of, there was so much wrong with the agriculture space at that time. I was like, how can we support them? How can we protect them from flood, from pests? And how can you ultimately even offer them insurance to insure them? Because the thing about uh, farmers then was that till now, was that every financial shock is, or even health shock has a very grave impact because it's highly uh, manual. So anything happens to his health, done. If he has flawed, unexpected, done. Like, so the impact of every little shock was so grave in, the, in helping them out of poverty in the lifestyle, or even the education of the kids. And I joined this company, and for two years, we were building this startup. After two years, they went ahead to do some work with the Central Bank of Nigeria, and uh, they're doing pretty well now. I felt it was time to focus on another challenge, but I didn't realize um, what it was. But I got into a project with Axion. Axion is a global firm that focuses on solving financial inclusion across the world, a social impact firm. And they picked uh, 15 of us to do this research for six months. And I said, okay, I'll just spend my time researching why it's easy to buy beer in the extreme north of Nigeria, but it's not easy to find access to credit. Why it's easy to buy cigarettes everywhere in Nigeria, and it's not easy to, to get insurance. How can these commodities reach the last mile and something as simple as savings or 
credit or identity is not reaching the last mile. And that was when Bankly started. And that was where interviewing real people, real lives, going to the local market, talking to women, seeing how much some of them needed and understanding the informal banking sector, like I explained. And then while I was doing primary research, uh, what makes some people pay back and what makes some people not pay back default, I found out that digitizing cash was hard. So if I send money to someone in Amsterdam right now as a loan, and then the money, the cash he or she has is in his pocket, how can they pay me back? Because money can't travel except it's digital. And so if I have 10 euros here, 10 euros in my bag cannot find itself to Barcelona, except it's digital. And that was where I realized digitizing this cash was a first step for them. Then you have a data source to be able to profile them and just provide credit and insurance. And that's how we got into Bankly. Great. Thank you. Yes. So I want to come back to the topic of microfinance, or you put it nanofinance. Nanofinance. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to come back to the topic of nanofinance in a moment and, and ask you about the limitations of that field and why you felt it was important to move toward Bankly. But before we leave off there, I just want to get a better understanding of the last mile problem as it relates to identity and credit mm-hmm. and and sort of why that's so important and why that's so hard. Mm-hmm. So what are the big picture um, you know, maybe cultural or economic or security issues that might make um, providing uh, at an identity and a credit record so difficult in northern Nigeria in particular? Uh, so the first issue with providing some form of, um, let me say, financial support, uh, financial institution, credit, or identity is, hmm, let me use the banks, for example. It's they are not as profitable. The unit uh, return on one of these customers of the low income is not as profitable for a bank than positioning in Lagos or Abuja where the unit income of individual is much more profitable. So the cost, they, they require the investment to do this. Uh, it takes a longer term for more capitalist <laughs> investors. And so they want quick returns and they can see why they should invest longer time when there is an opportunity they should take. So sometimes it's just ROI and the mismatch of the kind of investors who are trying to invest into the into the problem and they want real return in real time. And that's why it's actually important that social impact investors who have more patient capital, who are more willing to say, you know, I want returns, but I'm willing to wait the time it will take to get real returns. And I'm not looking for 40% ROI in two years. I'm looking for much more impactful return. And so that's the first thing. Second thing is there's been so much, I guess, uh, the the challenges with... um, with um, security and too many issues with Boko Haram. And, but what most important, let me not forget to mention that, is education. The literacy level is much lower in these places. So it's, it's harder. It requires a lot of education to teach these people the right things and why doing things a certain way is better. Now, what Bankly is doing differently is that we're not changing their behavior. We realized through research 
of course, that they are doing a lot of informal saving heavily. When Bankly launched, we found out that our savings product took off much more faster in the, in the north. They want to save, which is funny because what people have always assumed is that they don't even have enough to save. But they're the most, because they don't have enough, they are more orderly with their costs. So a farmer will separate the cost of end. The savings is trying to build to fix the roof. And the savings is trying to build to pay school fees. It's very, it won't mix them. It won't spend out of the school fees money to fix his roof. So they are much more orderly because they don't have the liberties that uh, much more higher income people have to, to accommodate financial shocks or unexpected. And so helping them to organize their finances, first of all, then understanding that when they digitize the organization of their finances, you can then help them. Impact organizations can then say, okay, fine, Joseph lives here. He is a 42-year-old man. He has six kids. He produces this volume of goods, and, and this is his production capacity. And if we could just give Joseph $100, even in interest-free loans or whatever, he would be able to improve his production capacity by this percentage, and ultimately, the household income increases by this percentage, and he can move from surviving on two dollar a day to then making five dollar a day, and then his kids, and ultimately, it's just the whole cycle. And the more the more they have, because I, I used the word the the hierarchy, the Maslow's pyramid. When, when you solve the physiological needs, it's then easier to teach them about um, environmental climate and tell them to organize, to say recycling, to say don't throw waste in this place. But when someone is hungry, you're coming to talk about climate, it's like, really? I have to survive before the world even survives. Like, so it's, it's, that's why it's, it's an important justice need. It's actually not for them only, it's for all of us. Because the more they don't understand the need for fairness, the more they don't understand the need for equality with both the women in the community, the more they don't understand the need. They don't even listen when they're hungry or when they don't know how the next meal will come. And so that's why finance being at the, Eradicating poverty and finance is a major part of it. Being at the foundation of every other SDG that we're layering on it is important. I shared yesterday at the session at the Peace Palace how it's important to maybe several, uh, maybe I'm going out of scope of your question, but I just wanted to share this. It's important to maybe see where, to see how several organizations trying to fight for the same thing see where you pass on the pattern. It's like a relay race, you know what I mean? Like I run this race, you're not very tired, you've not exhausted your resources and all, and your people in, in running the same race at the same time. So when I fix this, I say, okay, fine, it's time to pass it on to. When you fix poverty, then you're like, oh, uh, they're not, they are now feeding, they don't have to worry about how to feed, they are now okay with health insurances there. Then you pass it on to say, I think it's time to tell them about climate. I think it's time to tell them about equality. I think it's time to tell them about education, to make sure that education for all. And so it's a, it's a layered, while you continue the work, but you now bring them up to a level of thinking that they can now listen. You now take them um, beyond the survival mode to more like a self-actualized, wanting to 
deal with other needs like protection, like they're not willing to protect themselves. And how do you protect them yourself? Understanding that there's need to protect your, your environment, understanding they need to care for your neighbor, understanding they need to care for the women in your community, understanding that it's important not to physically abuse another person. And just that's when you move them up the pyramid. And then we can then say there's equality and there's justice for all. You raise a lot of issues that I'd like to come back to. The first one is this economics of poverty issue. So I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Abhijit Banerjee and Esther Duflo, who won the Nobel Prize in economics. And they were specifically interested in this this question of poverty traps and what is the difference between a real poverty trap and a poverty trap that we're just imagining that's not, not actually a poverty trap, but is maybe a structural or psychological obstacle to poor people developing. So the image you gave of that pyramid, to my mind, evokes the poverty trap, right? This this sort of S-shaped curve of I'm hungry, so I can't do anything to improve my productivity. I don't have an identity, so I can't do anything to increase my credit. And then if you can break some of those really fundamental impediments, then you can kick off that self-perpetuating process. So there's a clear theory of change there. And I'm wondering... In the case of microfinance, in the case of saving, one of the big impediments seems to be that when people have to pay anything to save, it's a strong disincentive. Studies have shown that even when you give someone a free bank account with an ATM card, if there's a withdrawal fee or if there's a maintenance fee on the account, it really decreases the percentage of people who are willing to save, even if that means they end up paying in the long run because they're going to you know, traditional money lenders or they're paying these really high interest rates. So I'm curious how Bankly approaches the problem of fee for service and how do you incentivize saving and remain profitable and pay your local distributors a high enough salary that they feel like the program is worth participating in? Great question, Joseph. I, I, we believe everything is in faces. And I agree with you that there is paying for saving, there is no incentive to continue. But the local, let me repeat part of the pitch that um, we shared at the Innovating Justice Forum. There's an informal banking system that currently exists. It has existed for decades in Cameroon, in Nigeria, in Togo, in Benin, in Ghana, I dare say, like across West African states, I have proof of that. Now, that informal system was more like community-driven. As an individual that they feel, oh, I think we all know him, or at least we... We are familiar with him. We see him every day. And then he comes and says, oh, I'm a thrift collector. And he said, okay, you can save a dollar every day for the next 30 days. And my fee is just the first day. It's on Google, this research. My fee is just the first day. So maybe the first day is the dollar. And what does he do? It comes around. They don't have to leave because, you know, they these are macro sole entrepreneurs who have to sit at the place of business and any 
thing that takes them away from the main point of business means they don't get money. And so it goes to them rather than they going to them or going to the bank. And so the cost of transportation to them and everything. In fact, the local card, they tick every day the record. They pay for the record. So they pay to sign up for this registration and then pay. They understand the system has been happening for at least 50 years. What Bankly First did was that do not make changes too fast. It's in phases. The ultimate place is to ensure that we even like bring in a lot more, make it cheaper, make it zero, and just even adding some form of asset management fees for them. But the first phase is to first digitize what they currently do. You met them with a system. I was wondering when I did a research, why even for a certain local market, there was a bank not very far from them. Why are you saving, paying to save when not so far there was a bank? It made no sense. Like, until I did that research with Axion, anyone else could have given me another data and I would say, it's a lie. There can be a bank within a mile of them and they are paying, knowing that they could walk into the bank, it's free to keep the money there and they were paying to save. There were several reasons. First, the bank doesn't, they wanted to discipline themselves. So they said, I have to keep this money for 30 days. So I don't want to withdraw it. With the bank, they can go anytime. No one is holding them. The second thing we find was the convenience. They make their money daily, sometimes 30 cents. No one is going to work every day to the bank to go drop 30 cents. The bank doesn't fit their lifestyle. So sometimes they're working and they feel out of place to drop in. 30 cents. So some of these things is almost psychological, so you don't understand it. But the first thing we did is the agent exists. There's a reason why the distribution there, like I said about beer or tobacco or even telco vouchers, there is a distribution that is being paid for the services before the services reach the last mile. And so we need to pay the distribution and I can't discount money. So what we first did was, okay, fine. Continue paying what you're paying, but you do not pay for sign-up. Zero sign-up fee was the first thing we took out. So there is since they don't, they don't need to pay. Usually they used to pay about $2 to sign up for the sign-up card. And when they lose that card, they pay another penalty for losing the card. We took that out. Say, zero fee to save. You don't need a card. And we bear the cost of the SMS and the registration and the, and the internet, that uh, everything that is done. But then the fee that the agent was taking was still being charged. We didn't mind because it was what they were useful for for years. And so that was the first step. Now the second step is how to ensure that they get used to this new digital system and then find a way to work, to, and to work with the former institutions to make sure that that asset makes enough return in a way that we can then start paying the agent from the return on, on the asset, on managing the asset, in a way that the customer no longer pays for it. And so the first step for us is that, let's see how much value this pool fund can bring to both the customer and the distribution in a way that we take away, we take away any kind of cost. We're not there yet, but the first step is take away the sign-up cost. It's free to sign up. The second step, reduce. We also reduced because, um, like I said, if you were saving a dollar every day and the agent takes the first day, one of the things the agent finds 
not outside of Bankly, before Bankly came, was that a customer will come and save a dollar because he knows the first day is your day. Then the next day, he comes with $5. So the agent sometimes freezes them and say, if you're going to start with the dollar, you have to continue with the dollar. But that's limiting for someone and limits the data available for Joseph, meaning that Joseph's capacity is $5 a day. But then the agent is forcing him to save $1 a day because of the fees. So when we took out the fact that it doesn't matter, if it's $1 you can afford for fees, fine. If you want to come the next day and save $10 because you had a good day in the marketplace, go ahead and save your $10. If you come the next day and say, okay, fine, it's 50 cents I could afford because I had a bad day in the marketplace. So there was no rigidity. It made it flexible for them to save and do good days and reduce. So they didn't have to worry any longer that, oh, I have to fix myself to $1 or I can try and cheat. So first thing, we took out the sign-up fee. Second, we made it cheaper and more flexible. And so the third phase, which is where we can't afford it yet, maybe if we got some, some windfall from some social impact, maybe we will, is we need to pay the distribution, else those agents would not do the work. I can't take them from their business and wipe out their costs. So that's the third phase for us, and we hope to get there very soon. Thank you. That's a really detailed and I think actually answers the, the question quite well. So if I can summarize what I'm, what I'm learning from what you're saying. It sounds like the first lesson learned here is that people do things for a reason. Poor people do things for a reason. And, and even if it seems counterintuitive or economically to not make sense, for example, paying for the privilege of saving or paying for the privilege of a discipline against withdrawing your money, that there's a bigger psychological truth there that's being met. I was surprised as you, but I then started realizing that sometimes when you're innovating for a segment very different from you, you can assume they're thinking like you. So first let them else. The more you try to thrust them into your behavior, the more you actually ostracize them so first understand be like them understand why they do what they do then start to pull the what they know into bringing them into what you know better or what you might not even know as better as they do like what you what do you know about their life that you haven't lived before that's that's amazing and i think there's definitely a larger lesson there that someone who's programming or even designing policy in the justice sector or really any area of development or the rule of law should take into account the other lesson that i think is maybe a more technical one that's really interesting and because you have a background in microfinance i wonder if you could address this is really about the cost of doing business with the poor or facilitating business among the poor from based on my background reading there's a kind of exponential increase in the cost of doing these kinds of transactions in microfinance because the default rate is so high right so if you have half of people default even if you're only giving out small loans you still have to increase the interest rate by double to make up for that loss of on defaults and so uh, microcredit has developed a social mechanism for enforcing repayment, basically collective skin in the game, collective shame. It sounds like what you're doing is interesting because you're sort of flipping the formula, right? So rather than coming and lending to the poor at the outset and assuming that they don't have resources and that the pathway to savings is first debt, 
which has always seemed a little counterintuitive to me. It sounds like you're coming in at the beginning and you're treating the problem not necessarily as an income problem from the outset, but addressing the savings, psychological incentives directly. Is that getting it correct? You have a knack for amazing questions. It's like you understand my business. I love that question. A lot of people have gone into the space from a lack of resources problem. I think it's different. And because if you give people something, um, so many things, like you said, psychologically, governments have gone in and just giving them debt and they think oh it's it's a piece of the national cake i don't have to pay back and what are we trying to do a sustainable thing if we keep going throwing money at the problem and then there is nothing really left to solve it we just people just take money and say oh it's a piece of the national cake anyway so i don't have to pay back what we did was different is the fact that you need to first being financially free, taking yourself out of poverty start from a mindset and it's not starting from having more money even us from a higher up in the food chain understands that, that it starts from your mindset. More money doesn't mean more financial freedom. You have to first get in that space of mental shift that I need to learn to save. I need to learn to invest. I need to learn not to live above my means. I need to learn not to buy the latest car or the latest iPhone if that is not tied to my goal, if I want to be financially free. Now, why do we treat them differently? Because we then think, oh, she makes a dollar. I mean, a person who makes a dollar and suddenly have, why do you think people who win the lottery always go back broke? Because if we think, it's, a, it's like giving them a lottery, even if it's not like you make $10 at the end, they say, oh, the government decides to support you with $100. They go marry new wives. <laughs> That's what they do. And so the first thing we need to do is change the mindset, letting them know that, oh, it's a reward system. And that's why I think the, the legal system is about making sure that fairness, showing that you reward a certain behavior and you kind of punish a certain behavior. That's where developed countries are able to keep the system in check and build good institutions. How? We get the customers to learn that even if it's a little money I make, I need to first learn something. I need to first learn that there's reward for being financially responsible. And it's not even more about the amount, it's about the system. And so sometimes they're not keeping the money for such a long time. What are they doing? You have a, a trader who has someone who comes to supply her. You have someone who sells biscuits and Coca-Cola and just um, a lot of um, small snacks in this little community. Now, maybe the Coca-Cola distributor comes to supply every fortnight. Now, she has a capital she used to serve the business and she makes money. Now, what she first needs to learn is not to spend the capital. So what they do is that every day, if, she, if the capital for the day was $2 and she made a return of $0.50, cents, she needs to first learn to say, keep the $2 away and only spend the $0.50 cent because by the time the truck guy comes in a fortnight, she needs to have the capital to restock or even better, to increase the capacity of our goods. That's the first thing we learn. So by the time you're teaching them that if you're saving $2 every day and at the end of the month you have $50, I'll give you 100 And so that was where. So we realized with the promise of the fact that if I do this, I'll get this. That was what earned the behavior. It's like teaching children. It's like saying that if you get good grades, I'll do this. Or if you do not, 
if you clean your room, we do this. I know it sounds weird to say like teaching children, but you need to teach people new behavior. So that's why we didn't start from debt and started from savings. And I started telling them I had a community, Islamic community, come to us. And we built in a product called the Sukuk, like a very specific because they don't believe in loans. And 55, I, I dare say we don't know, but almost half or more than half of Nigeria, basically the north, is Muslims. So if you're saying to them that, oh, if you save, I give you credit, and they don't believe in credit. So how do you say? So what we built in was something called the Sukuk. When we built in the Sukuk, it's like, you're not paying interest. We give you a discount of the loan. So if you're requesting for $100, you pay back out this balance to you, maybe $98 service fee of $2. And you pay back $100. So you took $100. They don't believe in RIBA, which is paying interest. But how can they be disadvantaged from people who are Christians because they won't take loans to... And credit is helps business, is leverage. So when we build that in, we got a call from the chief imam from a locality and said, I have 50,000 people in this neighborhood. We want to work with you. And I'm like, okay. I don't have the capacity. The first thing I was like, okay, fine. We've been testing the lending just with our personal money. It's time to get in people who want to lend these people. So we started saying, okay, fine. You need to understand that they need to at least keep saving for at least three months so that there's a pattern. Usually six months, no, we'll do three months with you. And you also stay and say, as a kind of guarantee within the community that, okay, fine, I'm guaranteeing that anyone that comes through the system to save and take credit, they will pay back. So using that social, like we say, the agent stands as a social, the community leader stands as a social. We then say, okay, fine, how can we then, we then say partnering with Intersuite to say, let's use your algorithm to crunch this data and then pass on this data to lending companies because we don't have the lending capacity for this number of customers. And that's what we found. It's something we are targeting to roll out in this Q1 because we then said finding opportunities that we didn't even have the resources as a new company to implement. I say one of the things I found that was ridiculous and funny is how you think that, oh, it's fintech and opportunities, every opportunity has been taken. And when I realized what we were onto was when we launched July 2019, the final product, the, the full product. We launched two months later. We had a visit from executives from a, an association called Association of Mobile Money Agents and Thrift Collectors. A number of them came to my office and said, we're reviewing your products. We find these challenges on that. I said, awesome. By the time they were done with feedback, this is what we liked about the product. This is what we didn't like so much. They spent three hours with me and they didn't realize they just had a strategy session. They walked out and I'm like, I looked at my co-founder and I said, oh my God, they just answered all the questions I didn't have answers to. And I told them, I'm listening. I think it's great. Whatever you want, I'll implement. And they said, okay, how long will it take you? I looked at the tech team. I said, I have not enough developers to implement this change. I said, I need two weeks. They said, we're waiting. So they waited three weeks for us to update this product and for them to use it. They kept saying, we're still waiting. When is it going to be ready? When can we come and demo it? I realized in the market that seems to be flooded with things, people were waiting three weeks for me to release a product. That's when you know that there's a market. There's a market waiting. Waiting. In fact, one of my lead technical guys said, why are they speaking like that? Like, 
looked around the company. I said, because there are buses, those are our customers. I said, this is powerful. Do you understand how much they feel like they own the product that they're telling you, oh, when it's ready, we need to come and see that, make sure that this is right there. These are the people, the agents who interact with those customers. They know they are one of them. They know what they need to see. So when they're asking questions, that's amazing to say they're so invested and they need it so much that they feel like this is mine. And that was, that was humbling. That's an amazing story. And I think from the policy perspective, mm-hmm. where people are talking about large abstractions around how to bring international money mm-hmm. into the region in a way that's going to be effective, I think there are two lessons there that I think are really insightful from my perspective. The first is that the business community can do things and cross lines and enter communities that the political system might find closed. That you can have a local religious leader reach out across Muslim Christian lines and say, we want to do this program in our community. Yeah. (laughs) When the political process breaks down, when the the environment for business breaks down, it can be just as powerful a force in supporting radicalization, in supporting jihadist groups who may be able to provide security at a cheaper price than the state. And then business then becomes an obstacle as opposed to an ally. So I think that's a really important lesson. And I'd love to hear if you have thoughts about that. I also want to just tag what you had to say from a design perspective, This idea that when we design programs from the perspective of a large international agency, they often want to see impact. They want to go big. They want a program that reduces their administrative burden by sending $100 million in to address a problem. It sounds like what you're doing is exactly the opposite. At a personal level, you're teaching people to save a little bit at a time and to learn the value of that saving and to become slowly financially independent. At the same time, your business is experimenting a little bit at a time, investing in one community here, responding to feedback from your clients and adapting, building capacity in response to the needs of your customer base. Mm So I'm wondering if there are large lessons for policymakers in your personal experience, both about how to design programs, how to build them up, and then how to use the business community, how to bring it to the table, make it a partner, use that entrepreneurial drive to try to get these healthy political goals achieved. Okay, I would start with you asking about the large, very big global impact organizations and how they design programs and what we did differently. I've never worked in one, so I can't say I have um, a view, a perspective of how they see things. So there might be reasons in the way they do things that I might see, but I would like to share my own perspective. Maybe that would be... Um, they'll, they'll find it valuable. One of the best things Bankly did was we didn't assume to know what the people needed. We didn't assume to, we didn't sit in a room and design what we thought people needed. 
we didn't also assume that because we were within a segment or even feel like, oh, some of our family members were within the segment we're solving for. The fact that we're so close to it doesn't mean that we understood. You could be so close to something, but you still would never understand it. And so we didn't assume that the fact that we had family members or some of us have even seen it or have people, colleagues and stuff who are directly impacted with this thing, we didn't assume that we still understood on a much larger level on one thing we've seen with one individual. And so one of the things we went in with was a learning perspective and an agile perspective. I can't imagine it was a long road to learning. Everybody hears me say we launched July 2019. We started the work January 2018, officially. Now, it took us a year and a half to launch a product into the market. Meanwhile, we started January 2018. We launched, as the tech world calls it, a minimum viable product in May 1st, 2018. As basic as... A product that had no real engine behind just because I wanted user feedback. I remember times when people were saving within a university, student within a local university were saving. And um, when they want to withdraw their money, sometimes they want to transfer to, some of them were even underbanked. They were far from banked. I see them trying to transfer to a third party, to a family member, into a bank account. At the back of it was no integration, no it was not automated. I received the email and go to my, ba- to my bank account to, complete, to try and transfer the money. And it was so hard to sleep <laughs> because I needed to make the customers feel like this was an automated product. Meanwhile, it was a human being behind. We didn't want to waste time. I am a real believer of the lean model. We didn't want to waste time building a product that wasn't sure there were people who needed it just because I assumed they do. So I wanted to build. So we used the minimum resources we had. I was bootstrapping. I was not working. So I was using my savings, my own investment to build this company. So I had limited resources, very limited resources. So I would wake up sometime at 1 a.m. because I just got an alert and I made sure that it was loud enough. Oh, someone is redrawing. And I didn't also, I needed to build the trust of the customers. I didn't want them to feel, oh, I requested a redrawal. And it took this long. But I didn't even have the required license or whatever to integrate with switches to be able to make sure that there was seamless transfer. And we did this between May 2018 till December or to January. Sometime during this time, we almost had to shut down the system because it was USSD. I don't know if you know what I mean by USSD. It means that you don't need a smartphone. You just dial a code. Now, what we had was people can sign up by dialing a code. In November, no, September, October, actually, 14,000 people signed up in seven days. Now, for every sign up, it cost me because I didn't want, we're still testing. No one should know about it. So our testing fund could only accommodate 1,000 people, the, the pool of funds we had. Now, for every sign-up, I was in debt with the telco. <laughs> I remember at 1 a.m. one day, my team and I, my co-founders, I was like, what's going on? It's been negative 2 million. We're negative 2.5 million. I was like, shut it down. <laughs> Shut this. We shut the system down immediately. And I, I then had this dilemma. The dilemma was I already had people who had their money in the system. 
and I had people who were just signing on. I do I didn't in extreme northern Nigeria and I didn't even have a distribution to to serve them because remember the first layer is you need to build a distribution because if I'm signing on, technology has no barriers. But when you're dealing with these people, there's a human factor because they're digitizing cash, remember? It's cash-based. There's no way I can convert cash into digital form if there's no individual converting it for me or a branch. So I now had this dilemma of about 500 people who already had money in the system and about 14,000 people who were signing on every day. Like It was growing 100% every day, so I shut it down. I then said, how am I going to ensure these people can still use the platform? Well... I don't allow these people because it was costing me. So we had to, all night, um, my CTO had to open up another code, like another gateway. So we then communicated via SMS to all the existing customers that, sorry, we shut down this code to leverage, uh, to use your system and use this code. On our website, we didn't update the new code so that new people do not see. But what I'm trying to see is that we did that then until 2019, we gathered all the data and came to the table and said, what have we learned? We started building. We started building. And it still didn't end. We launched July 2019. August was a team of people who came. And I went three weeks again, including the product. End of December 2019, new lessons. What am I saying is that it's like a relationship. I meet you now. I don't know you well enough. I think I know this. Or Joseph is like this. A few months later, I realized that I know more about Joseph to be able to wow him even more. Then a few years later, I said, I know exactly what to buy for Joseph to know that he'll be happy. Understand, like they say, your love language. And so that's the same relationship big organizations and we innovators should have with the customer. The more you get close to them, the more you understand what exactly they need and be ready to innovate it. Like I explained about the Islamic product, I went with savings only. It was while saving that I realized that the agent collected the savings and was using it. And while using it sometimes, some lose the money. And I'm like, I won't let you have access. It's, it's illegal for you to collect customer's deposit and use it for yourself as an individual. I need to ensure that the customer's deposit is protected, is insured. But they're like, oh, you're business people. We're doing this. We need to have some form of credit. And I'm like, okay, I'll find institutions who are willing to take the risk to give you credit. But I'm not going to let you use daily human people's deposits for credit. That was where credit came in. Not like I said, oh, we're building this savings and credit system. I was like, I'm building a savings system. I'm not doing credit. Remember, I was coming from credit. I thought, no, I'm not going there. And then credit came in. Then I started credit, and one day I had this young man working with me, and he's a Muslim. And he went into a, a conference. I was talking about Bankly. And some women went, we had an exhibition stand outside, and some women went to meet with him, and I can see you in Afa. Afa is a, is a title, like an Islamic title, like a young, like the way you say a priest, or a, an altar boy for a Catholic. Afa is like a young imam. And they said, we can see that you're this. Why are you working for this company that gives credit? It's against... Islam. And the guy quit. So I sat down and said, there's still some part of this product that is excluding some people. And so we factored in the Islamic credit to fill. And that was when we got the call from Islam. What am I saying? We kept learning. The learning does not stop. It's continuous iteration. Build, measure, learn. The cycle continues. Build, measure, learn. Build, measure, learn. And so you keep 
adding, taking away, adding, taking away. So like I said, I find out that Joseph doesn't like when I scream his name down the hall. I do not scream his name down the hall. He likes when I whisper. He doesn't like when I call him Joseph if he likes Joe. I just keep learning about them. And what I'm finding, bringing it home, what this large organizations first of all need to do is do not assume you understand what these people need. Sometimes it's so different. I thought I was so close to it, I thought, and something you're so close to it, you don't see it. And so be very willing to learn. Make sure that you have a team who's willing to learn. Make sure that you have a team that is working with people who's willing to learn. And be willing not to assume data from elsewhere represent another person. You need to come solve for people, meet their exact needs, and do to people. And that's what we need to do. So continuous learning. Yeah, just getting so close to the problem with whoever you need to work with to understand you're close to the problem. For Bankly, we're going to keep learning until we find it, until we find what works for these people. It's, it's, it's one of the hardest part because one minute the tech team is building this, I'm like, I need to add this to it more. But one of the, it's also good because we didn't buy technology. At a point, we wanted to buy technology, foreign technology to work on Bankly. Looking back, that was one of the best decisions we made, that we did not buy technology. Because if we had bought off-the-rack technology, it would have been hard to customize for the local market. But now it's easy for me to tell the tech technology team and said, we're working 72 hours straight to fix this, to add this feature. Features up, features coming on. And we started out just trying to be a simple savings company. Well, and we're becoming a lot more. Wow, it's amazing. And I, I love the way that you sum up core process that that lean, adaptive tech development mindset brought to this sector. Build, measure, learn. Yeah, I love that. I think it's a good point to transition to what comes next for Bankly. And also I'll, I'll throw out what seems to me to be maybe one um, potential challenge and opportunity on the horizon, but I'd love to hear what you see as your challenges and opportunities more generally. When I was first reading about Bankly and thinking about this interview, the first question that popped into my mind is, why is this person-to-person piece even necessary when people have cell phones? Mm -hmm. So if you take the example of M-Pesa in in Kenya, where it's just a, a currency that lives on your phone. I think that you have begun to answer that question with the story about how providing scaffolding for savings has value, intangible value, because of the psychology of deprivation and, and poverty. But I wonder what happens when you become so successful that people are totally used to the idea of their currency being digitized, maybe they've saved enough to upgrade to a smartphone, and that physical person who comes to the village and collects their cash in exchange for digital currency you know, is obsolete, is no longer a necessary piece of that financial circuit. In other words, when your core business model begins to dissolve precisely because you've been successful, what comes next? If I have to say a great question one more time, I would would be a Bill Gates. Um, That's a fantastic question. And I say so because 
in the real sense of it. If you become very successful, the network effect takes place. Let me give a background. I say for we that are banked, we don't need a middleman to interact with a bank. Now, to give you money, I don't need to go to a middleman or an agent. I mean, I don't need to even hand you cash. I'm digital. You're digital. PayPal, I'll send to you. Uh, I have um, one of the banks in Netherlands I sent to you. So when the network effect happens, it's hard to need cash. I barely needed cash in, in The Hague because person-to-person works. Now, if this community becomes one of the mission, sta- uh, the mission statement of Bankless are building digitally viable communities, right? And so if this community becomes so digital, then person-to-person Peer-to-peer would not need an agent network. And yeah, and that question is there, like, so what happens to the agent network? But that's actually the success. And I'll explain why you still solve it using MTN. When MTN first came into Africa, I'll use Nigeria, 20 years ago, they had an agent with an umbrella. You go, most of us didn't have mobile phones. There was no mobile penetration. So you walk to this agent who had a mobile phone, and you say you want to make a call, and it says it's 10 naira, and you make calls for two minutes, you give him 20 naira, you walk away. The telco does not know you. Who they know is the agent. Whatever transactions or calls you guys make on his phone just increases his volumes. They didn't identify who made the call. They only knew whose phone and number, which was the agent. The agent was their customer, not you. They moved away from that to we having mobile phones. And then we had mobile phones, but we still do what with the agent, digitized cash. So I walked to an agent. I gave him just the same way I would work to a Libara store here because I don't have a bank account. I give cash. They give me a, a token. I load the token. If it's 50 euros I was buying, 50 euros in cash suddenly becomes digital. I make the calls myself, I buy data myself, they know me, but I still needed the agent to digitize the cash and pay me to them. That was the second phase. And that was the phase when over penetration started increasing, but we still needed cash. They still needed the agent not to provide a service, but to be, it became a product, it became a commodity. I just go to the agent to buy a product, load the product and self-serve. So you see the transition. I needed to really understand this. It comes from service to become a commodity like Coke or water or beer. Then finally, for the segment that are all banked, the banks came in and said, you can buy directly from your bank account. And then I could sleep in my room and instantly buy airtime. That's what happens in Nigeria for here. It's maybe like contract. Sleep in my room and instantly buy airtime without needing to see a fiscal person. And now the question then asks is that, what happens to the agent, right? I want to believe that's your question because these are the layers I've used to build this. Several things, if we look at it from the telcos, what happened to the agent? It's, it's, it's a process I've been trying to think about deeply and we have an answer for it. But until I get there, I will see where the answer works. Remember, build, measure, learn. And the first thing I see is, that, okay, fine. The agent right now is providing a service. Sooner or later, it becomes a commodity. It just sells like the way Coke sells. They go to him. If they have cash and just buy cash and top up and then do whatever, transfer to people, use whatever they need to pay for services or to move money around for each other. 
sooner or later, they only move money between each other, which is digital, which reduces the cost of printing money for every government. It reduces fraud. It reduces money laundering and all. The, the, the shadow community is taking out when fonts is digital and the cost of printing money is greatly reduced worldwide. And definitely we save more trees and environmentally, that's actually even preferred. But what we are trying to test, which is, I don't know if I can disclose this on the podcast because it's still a journey. Okay, let me see. What MTN has done, I'll say is, even when the banks came in, the banks couldn't connect directly to the bank, to them without going through the distribution. Deliberately. Because they're like, you know, these distributors, the distributors are more the bigger ones because even the chain we use now is Bankly, distributors, the agent, and the customer. Now the distributor stays there and the banks have to go through the distributors, meaning that they don't yank them out because these are big businesses that were built just because the bigger MTN grew, the bigger these distributors grew, the bigger Nigerian breweries grew, or whoever breweries that works with Budweiser grew, the bigger the distributors grew. They become millionaire, billion-dollar companies themselves just because they're affiliated to a big global firm. And you don't just shut down those companies. You find a way to incentivize them. You find a way to say, okay, fine, you own a territory. Whatever sign-up that comes in that territory, you end something. Just even because you're within that territory. And then you cascade, so it becomes shared value. And that's how I think you could even reduce, you can become a conscious capitalist to make sure that I think authentic power is ensuring that the bigger you grow, the bigger others grow. And so you don't take them out. It becomes less digital, but they then own all the signups that's happened through them and transactions that come, they end something, almost very multi-level, they end something. New transactions that come, they end something, almost service, and they then become service points. You don't have to have presence, but they become like your agent and service point that you still go. We still need stores to go buy an Apple store. We still need Apple stores everywhere. And so they become your service point to people going and say, oh, I had this issue in my account. I need a car. I need to do this. I need to do that. Can we fix this? Can I check my credit score? Can I register? Can I change my address? And they earn from all of those value-added services. I want to talk on, about another challenge in a, in a moment having to do with, with regulation and corruption and, and the political system. But first, I, I want to uh, touch on maybe a potential opportunity. So thinking about this whole financial chain, mm. there's the microcredit end of the spectrum, and then there's the large firm that is formally banked. But where there seems to be maybe some gap is in the small and medium enterprise space. And I'm curious if part of the core of your business model, maybe the most essential piece of your business model, isn't the data that you're gathering about these distributors as entrepreneurs. So I'm wondering if one of the potential avenues for growth for Bankly is that now you know among Nigeria's less formalized communities a group of entrepreneurial, responsible, financially savvy small business owners. Yeah. And when, when their kind of service role begins to wane, can you build up those people? Can you develop the capacity of those people in a way that's profitable to Bankly? 
it might those be the small business owners of 10 years from now that you could feel confident lending to knowing that they'll repay you, not because there's social pressure, but because they're savvy business people. I'm wondering if the knowledge problem that confronts investors in developing markets or emerging markets, the problem is there are all of these actors who conceivably could be contributing to the economy, but we don't know who's who, right? We don't know who's going to be a responsible saver, responsible mm -hmm. investor, and that drives up the cost of financing them. I wonder if one of the things that you're, that you're actually building here mm -hmm. is a, a network of local distributors mm -hmm. who are also potential business leaders in their communities. Mm -hmm. That's pretty accurate. What we're building is a network of small businesses or potential small business owners who can grow big. Like I say to them, we either go big together or go home. <laughs> like I say to them. And because what I've seen, we are not inventing the wheel or reinventing it. I've seen it work in other industry. All we need to do is make it work in financial services. And the thing is, if you find Dangote Cement, for instance, you know who Dangote is? He's the richest man in Africa. If you find Dangote Cement, the distributors he's built have become big businesses, highly successful businesses themselves, multi-million monthly revenue businesses. I know distributors for Talcos whose revenue in a month is an average of $3 billion. And they started from nothing. I know them. I have some of them as partners. I sit with some of them and say, how did you do it? They were older. They're older now, but they took advantage of an industry early. And they leveraged the support that this big business was, the learnings, the, the, the trainings, and the capacity they were given to grow, to become highly successful businesses. And so that's what we see with these people becoming, growing to be those highly successful businesses just because Bankly grew to that level. And so if Dangote can do it from scratch in commodities and cement and sugar and salt and pasta, that's what it sells. Why not in financial services? Why should it be just the big banks becoming billion-dollar companies why can't we have this chain of highly successful business people which just reduces the concentration of wealth at a certain point? Well, that's a perfect segue to my challenge, <laughs> which is a, another way of, I think, flipping the access to justice narrative about Bankly. So the message we've heard is that Bankly is an entrepreneur who is working for profit and is providing a product that is really good for people's justice needs. People need identity, people need access to digital finance, so you are providing a service. I want to flip the frame a little bit, though, and talk about you as yourself an SME and, and think about the, the political regulatory environment that you're operating in. And one of the big dangers is that a minnow doesn't look very appetizing to a shark but a slightly bigger fish starts to look pretty tasty. Um, and so like thinking about that Dango Day figure, hypothetical scenario, what happens if the day ever comes mm -hmm. that someone of that caliber in Nigerian mm -hmm. political and economic power mm -hmm. 
approaches you and says, I love Bankly, I love the model, it's a beautiful company, I'll buy you out for X million dollars, and if you say no, I will use my political power, I will muscle you out. So my question for you is, what's the value proposition that you want to make uh, at that moment, and also what politically needs to be in place for Nigeria to continue being a good business operating environment for Bankley in 10 or 20 years? So I'll start the question from the regulatory and the political risk for Bankley. I'll move it to the acquisition question <laughs> and then move to what needs to be in place. So I think I'll break it down into three. Um, for the current regulatory and political space, I believe there are challenges. There are challenges to, to building a company or successfully, especially one within the regulatory, right up the regulator's alley in a place like Nigeria. But also, if you, you need to understand the place where you're playing. If you do not understand what is obtainable, who you need to engage, how you need to engage them, what they need to hear, what is aligned with their goals, how you align with their goals, how you can solve their own problems, then you will be, you stand a risk of being kicked out or crushed because you have not positioned yourself as what they need to see or what they need to hear. And I think, thankfully, we have been successful not because we deliberately set out to position ourselves like that but because the mission we're going for is the same that the cbn is going for include those people find where they are know them know give them an identity give them access to digital finance we know that that's the first step to lifting them out of poverty the government has spent a lot of money giving them credit through a social intervention scheme i don't want to mention and um, most recently after we finished uh, and learned a lot. We reached out to the key people in the CBN and said, this is what we found. This is what we're learning. This is how we've seen the market going. And they have been quite helpful. In fact, we spoke to one of the deputy governors, Aisha Ahmed, amazing lady. And she was like, this is amazing. This is exciting. How can we help? How can we position to ensure you successfully reach these people? And their response has been positive. But I'll also say that what we did right is in understanding who we're dealing with and knowing how to communicate with them because they also have a mission. It's not all gloom. Yeah, most times I say Nigeria suffers bad PR. There's a lot not working right, but unlike uh, America, you don't assume every American is a serial killer or school bomber. But we, because you see the good side we see good sides and the bad sides and so it's easy for us but i mean nigeria suffers a lot of bad PR, so it's not all gloom there are people within the political system and the economic system who are really trying to do good work and that is and knowing how to engage them and knowing how to speak their language like hill said uh, knowing how to find where their pain point is and showing how you can be a relief, you can make it more efficient or even more cheaper for them to achieve that is important. The second question about one a big player coming to buy Bankly. 
Acquisition is always a question. We've had offers already. And I remember saying to the biggest offer we had in November 2019, just two months ago, I don't even, I feel like a baby I haven't birthed. I'm already giving up for adoption. So I, when I said no to that, I'm like, I don't really know what you think you're, you're trying to buy. But it's like a woman who's still pregnant. I can't give a baby out for adoption. That is still. But what if it gets to the point where I feel this baby's grown up and then ready for adoption already? I think it's, it's important. What, what we found, my partners and I have found, is that the alignment of the goals. I'm willing to step away if I will be an obstacle to achieving the goals. And that's one thing I've confronted from the beginning of banking. So if it means that in a few years, another person is more equipped to carry on the vision and carry on in a much more impactful way, I would be willing to step aside. But that, if and only if there's an alignment goals and vision, not just for capitalist reasons, not just for political reasons. And um, and so at that time, if I would be a blockade to achieving my own goals, I would willing to step aside. So that's my answer on acquisition. The final one is what the political space would be in 10, 20 years. I think um, every relationship starts from day one. So if we are on the right track in engaging and showing alignment, we would always be together making sure that we're working closely together to achieve the same goals and so once we ensure that there is no the relationship keeps growing in the sense that we are aware of what the big goal of the financial regulators and the policymakers are and make sure that we share input on what we're finding in the real market so that they are not too far from the people and then we can also be a platform for them to connect with these people i think once we start that journey and continue working that path I don't think 10, 20 years would be a challenge. To wrap up, I want to just drill down on that last point of establishing relationships. I think one of the most exciting things about Nigeria, but really it's true of the Sahel as a region or West Africa as a region, is that there is this tremendous challenge of the demographic bubble, this youth bulge. It's a young population. It's a population that thinks very differently now than it did 20 years ago. There are a lot of really dynamic leaders under the age of 40 who I'm who I'm meeting in the course of my research. And I know in Nigeria there was the Not Too Young to Run campaign, and there was a wave of younger politicians entering parliament. So very encouraging signs, especially given that on issues and SDG goals like climate change, it's really been youth that has driven forward the political agenda. So how would the international community approach the young, smart, energetic cohort of Nigerian leaders who ultimately we need to form those relationships with to move forward the sustainable development goals? That simple question seems to be my toughest. Because the the thing about Nigeria is that sometimes the people who... who the noisy lot, I'm going to say, might not be the most impactful lot. And so sometimes people are busy working and people are busy talking. And so you get to find people who are talking the talk and then they get to have a lot more access to the international community and the people who are working the work are working, yeah, working the work because maybe one of the things they're not learning to do is talking or showing forth, communicating right what they're doing 
like I say, we seem to have a problem of bad PR or not even learning how to use comms as a tool. That's one of the lessons I'm learning, even with here, to try as much as possible to not just bury myself in the work and then be more open to showing forth what we're doing because I was very much, I didn't want to be confused <laughs> by those talking the talk and I'm like, no, I'll keep working, the work will speak for me. Now, where do you go to be able to tell this two apart? It's not quite easy. But I'll say that uh, the most important thing to do is if you have a sector, you're trying to connect with people within that sector. I think finding one person, one person, one man can do the job. What I mean by one man can do the job is finding one person in a space and using them as an anchor to connect with like minds is the right way to go. But then the job, the, the onus is on that um, organization to find that one person. It does not have to be the one with the, with the largest following. I mean, no matter what, I think a golden fish cannot hide. But I just think that that's all they need to do, find one person and tell them what the scope and what you need them to do within the local community. And because they have the right values, they would find like minds, even if they have to go outside of their immediate circle to find those people. But ultimately, that's all you need. And I think that's part of what Hill has done right. Hill found one agent in a country and leaves it to the agent to find the people they need to bring in. I, for one, did not... I'm not a lawyer, so it's not a natural thing for me to have accessed the kind of opportunities that Hill came through. But I had people in my circle who sent me emails and said, have you seen this? You should apply for this. I'm like, nah. And sending me emails and said, you should look at this. You should look at, just apply. And finally, I was like, yeah, she doesn't seem to want to get off my back and let me apply. And then the team came and get to, and met me and I'm like, no, we need to get you here. And what I'm trying to say is that that one agent was necessary because sometimes putting out the information people were all all they do excuse me is sit out seeking those opportunities because that's all they do get to be the people the international community works with and they might not be the most impactful people on the ground so the job is to find the person and use that person as an agent of change within the local community, making sure the value is aligned. Because what I found out in Nigeria is when you find people, they are amazing people. It's a big space. You will have people who are committed to continue the corruption. But there are amazing people who would self-sacrifice to make sure that that country is good. And finding those people who are aligned with those vision is it. And once you find them with the vision and the values, it makes your work easier. Uh, I think we have found at least one such person, so <laughs> thank you so much for your time. Rule of Law Talk is a production of the World Justice Project. This episode on access to civil justice in the Sahel has been part of the Rule of Law Solutions Initiative, a storytelling program for sharing effective approaches to strengthening the rule of law worldwide. Rule of Law Solutions is a registered acceleration action for UN Sustainable Development Goal 16.3, which aims to promote the rule of law at the national and international levels and ensure equal access to justice for all. Please tune in to our next episode.
where I speak with Babatunde Ibidapo Obe, Nigerian attorney and founder of LawPaddy, about how he has built an automated information platform to streamline legal referrals and self-help in Nigeria. The Rule of Law Solutions Initiative is made possible by the American Council of Learned Societies and the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Additional support for access to civil justice in the Sahel has been provided by the Knowledge Management Fund, a program of the Knowledge Management Platform Security and the Rule of Law at the Klingendale Institute for International Relations, Netherlands. Special thanks to Tomiwola Arijana for her participation in this recording. Additional sounds provided by Jordan Powell under Creative Commons non-commercial license. I'm Joe Haley. Thank you for listening.